Amen. Well, this morning we're uh, beginning a new study. We're uh, in the book of Mark. And we uh, know that actually Mark uh, was, uh, for his primary source, uh, received uh, what he knows from uh, the Apostle uh, Peter. We know this because actually we have firsthand accounts of those uh, who know this uh, from uh, Mark and Eusebius, the church historian, uh, captured uh, that uh, for us. And so we have reason to have great confidence. This is the very first of the Gospels. Um, and it's replete with details, especially around the events of the life of Peter himself. And one of the tells that this is actually Peter's work is Peter never appears in a positive light in this gospel. <laughs> He's always telling about uh, his own uh, failures, uh, whether it's to understand or to obey uh, Christ, And we'll see as we go along that that has great significance for us. Well, if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able? Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Father, may you be pleased to add uh, the grace of your spirit to our hearing and our understanding. Uh, let your word uh, flow quickly into our hearts, uh, into uh, our, our lives that they might run out uh, through us and bring praise to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Well, 
When I was 11 years old, my dad came home and announced over dinner that we were moving to Joppa. He painted a picture of what life would be like. He described the new home we'd have. He told us about the marina that was just 100 yards from our house and talked about how much fun we'd have fishing, that there'd be new schools and new friends. I only learned later that his uh, company, Exxon, had made a decision uh, that all their employees in Richmond would be moving uh, to the new office in in Towson. Um, But as I thought about what he said and, and thought about the changes and the losses, I thought those are outweighed uh, by what will be a new beginning in my life. Uh, I wasn't doing well in school. Uh, I didn't have uh, close uh, friends. And a new start, a fresh start, really deeply appealed to me. Now, we might think that moving, uh, changing uh, friends, jobs, or even spouses will somehow solve all our uh, problems. And really, we should know better, shouldn't we? After all, there are just some things you can't move away from. Uh, not, Not to mention, least of all, yourself, of course. But... Uh, there are the choices uh, that we've made, some poor choices, sometimes uh, in pursuing pleasure and sometimes in response to pain. There are difficulties and even evil things that uh, touch our uh, lives, illness, infertility, unemployment, conflict, uh, alienation in relationships. We don't become different people uh, by changing our zip codes. But even though that's true, I know for myself there are things within me and choices I've made, uh, things that have touched my life that just leave me longing for a new beginning, a beginning I cannot manufacture. And Mark tells us here that God has acted to bring a new uh, beginning to the world. The very first word in this book is beginning, and he's echoing the opening words of the Bible. But the beginning here is not the creation of uh, the world. No, it is the beginning of God's coming into the world in a fresh way. If you were uh, someone who lived in the Roman Empire and heard these words, you would it'd have a familiar ring for you because this is in fact how it is that the imperial propaganda machine announced the birth of new emperors. They uh, let the empire know that a god had been born, a new age had dawned, it would be a new beginning uh, for the Roman Empire. Well, Mark's gospel is not about a new beginning for the Roman Empire, but that in Jesus, God's kingdom has dawned. God's presence and power and authority have broken into the world to accomplish the purposes he has always had for the world and his purposes in redeeming his people. Now, this new beginning is not a single event. 
And the gospel holds out the hope to us of continuous renewal, of new beginning after new beginning after new beginning, the same way that dawn holds out the promise of a new day. And this morning I want to show you two things. One is I want to show you God's new beginning has arrived in Jesus. I want to walk you through what Mark wants us uh, to see and then how it is that you can experience this new beginning that God uh, has for you in your new life. Now, Mark draws us in with a mood of anticipation and expectation, not unlike the way that a a movie uh, director does before the release of a new film. You know, before a new film is released, a year, six months in advance, a trailer, a preview uh, for the film is uh, released. And the preview promises that the movie will be interesting and worth a while. And it leaves you with a sense, I really need to go uh, see that. And Mark creates expectancy by showing us the pattern of promise and fulfillment. He starts with three promises from the Old Testament. You might not recognize it because the only uh, place he notes is the prophet Isaiah. But he's citing three different texts, and he does it in a way that, well, we would think is strange, but it was common in the ancient world. He cites a phrase, and the phrase or a sentence was meant to awaken in the listener uh, a recollection of a larger uh, passage in its setting and its significance. The first passage that's alluded to here is from Exodus 23. It's a promise of God's angel, his messenger, going before uh, Israel uh, in the wilderness, leading them into the promised land. And then Isaiah 40 opens a long section in the prophet, a section that speaks of great hope for God's uh, people. Isaiah sees God coming uh, to his disobedient people who've been sent into exile, the consequences of their sin, and that God would act to restore them by sending a servant who would suffer for them, who would bear their sins, who in his death would atone uh, for them and restore their relationship with God. Afterward, this servant would come as the triumphant conqueror who in his global ministry would bring the whole earth to honor and recognize God. And then this phrase, in, I will send my messengers drawn from the prophet Malachi, who sees God coming in judgment to cleanse his people so that they are ready for the great and final day of judgment for the world. All of these prophecies uh, have this common theme of God coming uh, to his uh, people. And they touched the deepest places in the hearts and minds of the people who lived in Jesus' day, for they were longing for a fresh coming of God. See, Mark is using these to raise uh, to our awareness this expectation of these promises. And he describes two fulfillments. The first is here with the ministry of John. He's the messenger who prepares God's people for the day of visitation. He makes a straight uh, path, not by building a highway as would be built for an ancient king, but by launching a movement. John is a booming prophetic voice 
who launches a reform movement for people who need a fresh start because they're far from God, for people who are weary of the status quo, who long to see God work afresh in their day, and for people who recognized well that the revealed religion of the Bible had been corrupted by the priests and tainted by the teachings of man. And so by design and in keeping with these ancient prophecies, John calls people to the wilderness, not to the temple, not to Jerusalem where you would expect them to meet with God, but to the wilderness. Because in the Bible, the wilderness is the place of new starts, a place of hope, a place away from all the distractions so that people could meet with God and listen uh, to him, where they could focus on him and learn once again what it means to depend on uh, him and to trust him. The emphasis of John's ministry, though we call him the Baptist, was not his baptism. It was his preaching. He calls people to deep change, to repent, to change their way of thinking and living, to turn from one way of living to an entirely different way of living that was oriented around God's desires and will. That's why we read in verse 6 that uh, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt and ate what we would regard as a rather strange diet of locusts and and honey. Uh, He's reminiscent of Elijah. And like Elijah, who was a prophet who confronted God's people and brought them to a crisis moment on Mount uh, Caramel, uh, and uh, he confronted King Ahab for his apostasy. So John's another Elijah who's confronting the nation uh, with their spiritual apostasy of how far they've gotten uh, from God. And and he also challenges a king and it ultimately costs him his head. But instead of recounting that preaching for us, the one thing Mark wants us to see is that John points to Jesus. Jesus. There is one greater than I, he says. One who has a greater gift than I have to give. The Holy Spirit, the one who Israel recognized in his coming would be the dawn of a new age. And then what Mark wants us to see is these Mark's gospels like a series of movie scenes. And the next scene is Jesus' debut. He's before us. And... uh, In this uh, moment, what we see is Jesus comes to John and is baptized to him. Jesus is joining John's movement, and he's taking his place in it. Now, Mark is writing, well, mostly for Christians who know that Jesus is, in fact, the sinless Son of God. They know that he doesn't need to come to repent of any sins. He doesn't need to reorient his life like we do. No, they know he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he's the sin bearer. And so they could work out that he's baptized to identify with God's people in their sin. And what happens next is not what Jesus does, but what God does to him. 
And these three events are the keystone in understanding who Jesus is. He experiences uh, three things, and all of them signify that God is coming and starting a new age. The heavens are torn open. It's a violent word. The Spirit of God descends, and the Father speaks from heaven. And Mark speaks in the passive voice in all these verbs, because it's God is the one who's acting here. Jesus' authority and his identity are revealed here. His identity and authority here. And I want you just to ponder this because this is of such importance in understanding just who Jesus is. The heavens are torn open. And Isaiah in the 64th chapter puts it this way. Oh, that you would render the heavens, O God, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for them. The heavens are torn open. This means that the normal barrier between heaven and earth has been uh, pulled aside. This means what's happening is of cosmic importance. And then the Holy Spirit descends unto him. The new age is initiated by this act of the Spirit coming. And Jesus is completely filled and equipped to do the ministry he will do uh, by the Spirit. And then the divine voice tells us that Jesus is very, very different than John. John uh, has the kind of greatness of a holy man, but Jesus has the greatness of being in a unique relationship with God. He's God's son. And for ancient people to be the son of someone indicated that you were the very same character as that. Jesus is God's utterly unique son. He not only represents God, but he is God himself. As the son of God, Jesus not only speaks for God, but he acts as God. And he's God's beloved son in whom God is utterly pleased The Father is delighted in Jesus. Their relationship has no shadow of disappointment or failure or disobedience or rivalry. And Jesus, by this experience, knows who he is. His identity is given to him by God. And Mark is inviting you to see this. He wants you to see who Jesus is is. And if you aren't sure who he is, would you come along with us in these next weeks as Mark reveals him? At once, without pause, without a moment to catch his breath, the spirit drove. It's a very strong word. He's cast out into the wilderness. And the question for Jesus is he's 
tempted and tried is will he live out this new identity? This is not staged the way a television wrestling match seems to be. Now, Jesus is fully human, and he must make meaningful, actual decisions. And what Mark wants you to see is that the entire opening scenes of the gospel are taking place in the wilderness. Isaiah's quote is that voice crying in the wilderness. John's ministry happens in the wilderness. Jesus not only goes into the wilderness to meet John, but he is sent out for 40 days. Now, the Judean wilderness were badlands. They were hostile. They were barren. It's a place that people rarely visited. It was a dangerous place, and Jesus is there without any human company. It's a place of supernatural evil, of wild animals and angels. And Jesus is there in the wilderness to battle the forces that are hostile to God, the things that seek to destroy human life. And Mark will show us very soon that Jesus won this battle, the very first miracle that Mark records is Jesus casting out demons, uh, spirits of these dark spiritual uh, forces. And the very first parable he will uh, tell uh, tells us that Jesus is the strong one able to take on the other strong man. Why does this matter? Why should you care? Well, because the deepest reason our world and each of us needs a new beginning is that Our world and our lives have been touched by evil, by things that are utterly hostile uh, to us. And if you're skeptical, I can understand, but I just suggest you just take a look at the news. There's just countless examples of cruelty and violence and hatred and uh, greed, and, and I won't belabor it. And I look at my own life and I I realize uh, evil has touched me, then I'm tempted and I've yielded uh, to it. And in Jesus, victory dawns. In principle, in the desert, in those 40 days, he won a victory over all evil forces, cosmic, personal, and situational. Now, how do these new possibilities become ours? How can we experience God's new beginning? Well, Jesus tells us, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And what Jesus is saying is, it's decision time. Now, there are two words in the ancient Greek for time. One is chronos, that's calendar time, clock uh, time. That's where we get chronometer uh, from and chronology. And the other word is kairos time. That's the word used here. It's a special moment of time, like the birth of a child, or a wedding, or a graduation. And kairos time has come. It's fulfilled because Jesus is present. The time of God's coming to the world has arrived in him. God has come in a new way. Now, maybe an analogy would would just help you appreciate what's going on here. So let's just suppose for a moment, let's just do a thought experiment. You decide you want to go to New York. 
perhaps you want to take in a, a show on Broadway or, or take in the wonderful food that can be found there. And instead of driving, you get on Amtrak and take a train up there. And once your time is uh, done there, you head back to Penn Station. Now there are hundreds of people milling about in Penn Station. And there's just a din of noise from all the conversations. And there's the clacking of the wheels of luggage moving along. And a voice booms on the loudspeaker. Train 106 is now boarding for Washington. Will passengers holding tickets for train 106 please proceed uh, to gate 7? Now some people never hear the announcement. Other people who hold tickets for a different uh, train don't uh, pay any attention to it. But some who are eager to go to Washington look up expectantly. They check their ticket and they head immediately to gate 7. And for those who were longing for a new beginning, Jesus is announcing that here it is. It's available in him. And Jesus summons those who want a new beginning to repentance and faith. Repentance is the changing of one's mind. It involves the changing of your thinking, your attitudes, your actions. And it begins with an admission of spiritual poverty. It means being really honest about what's in your life and what dishonors him or how you've ignored him or perhaps how you're resisting him. Faith is the other side of the coin of repentance. It's turning from yourself, uh, you know, from your self-reliance, uh, from depending on your own judgment about things, your own uh, wisdom, your own plan for your life to Jesus, to learn from him, to follow him, and to rely on what he has done. And this means reordering and restructuring everything about our lives, our values, our beliefs around the reality that God reigns as king in the person of Jesus. We do this not just once. We have to do it again and again and again. Season after season, year after year. Now, if you're here this morning and you know you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. And if you've considered him, you're considering him, and you know he's calling you, then it is decision time for you. Do not resist any longer. Say yes to him, because the time has come. It's time for a decision. Most of you here are Christ followers, and it is decision time for you as well. Because the gospel is uh, written, this gospel is written, uh, so that we might identify with the disciples. And the disciples, along with actually everybody else except the Roman centurion at the end, don't understand who Jesus is. They really don't understand his identity. And in the one brief moment, it seems that they do. They really don't understand why he's come at all. Mark's gospel is asking Christ's followers, do you recognize Jesus for who he is? Do you really understand what's required of you in light of who he is? It's time for you to decide and to follow him. Have you reordered your life in terms of this reality?
Is your fidelity and allegiance to him what it should be? It is decision time. Will you recognize that if you're baptized, that in your baptism, God the Father is saying exactly the same thing to you that he said to Jesus, that you are my beloved child and I am well pleased with you because of what Jesus has done. If you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Jesus. And those words that the Father spoke to Jesus are now yours. That's your identity. That's your standing before God. Have you embraced that good news? Are you living out of the reality of that, of the freedom that that should uh, bring you, the, the freedom from being concerned about what other people think about you, the freedom of being uh, just consumed with your past and the failures uh, that are there. The good news of the gospel is more. It's not less than this. It's more than about being right with God, though. It's a call to embody following Jesus with other disciples. Indeed, following Jesus with other disciples is one of the primary ways that we give evidence of the reality, the truth, of the message of the gospel. It's our relationships with each other. And so the question that Mark's posing to us, and he'll pose again and again, is are we working out what it means to live a life in connection and community with others? Are we inviting people into our lives to have deep relationships with them and to have them challenge us? and to hold us accountable, as well as to support us and walk alongside of us in life's difficulties and pain. If you're raising children, is their success, whether it be in school or career, in life, uppermost in your mind? Or is it actually more important to you that they become devoted followers of Christ? If you're in or near retirement, is your dream of a life of leisure, of 10, 20, 30 years of leisure, as if you were uh, belonged to some great family in England in the 19th century? Or are you asking, what does the king want from me in the last half or quarter of my life? What will you decide? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and Lord, if uh, we're honest, most of us probably feel like I do, that there's still more deciding, more turning, more repenting, and more trusting that needs to be done. And Lord, uh, now in these moments, all of us who feel that way uh, resolve once again to orient ourselves around you, Lord Jesus, our great King God the Son, the Son of God, the sin-bearer, our great Savior. Meet us in your grace, we pray. Refresh us with your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, Jesus.